You will never embrace the will of God until you first understand the ways of God. Take your Bible and turn to Isaiah chapter 40, if you would. I want to I share with you uh, some of the ways of God. This is just kind of a primer, a, a study for you on the ways of God. You can make your own list and start here. But if we understand the ways of God, then we will embrace his will. That The first way of God I want us to look at is this, that God does his work in, in sovereign ways. That the ways of God and the ways of man are different. The, the ways of man are, are comfort and convenience and control, influence, and, and to be well thought of and to be served. The ways of God are often ways of obscurity and criticism and, and, and deprivation. And, and we don't want that. And I, I'm, I'm in a process in my own life just learning some things about, about the ways of God. But let's get started here. Isaiah chapter 40. This is a passage where the prophet Isaiah is trying to explain to a, a wayward nation why they should submit themselves to this sovereign God of the universe. Again, the nation of Israel was so concerned about the acts of God. You ever um, been to a, a circus or, uh, I was going to say the Ed Sullivan show. You been with the Ed Sullivan show? Anyway, uh, <clears throat> that, that really, I got, I got dated really bad this week. Um, Mark Wurzel really dated me this week. He said he, when he came to camp and met me the first time, he was 10 years old. That was just not a kind thing for him to say to me. I, I just want you to know that. But anyway, um, you probably never heard of Ed Sullivan. Anyway, uh, circus or whatever. You, and, and they have these like dog and pony shows or these trained animal acts. And, and the, these little dogs come out and this guy's got this hoop and, and this dog comes and jumps through and then it does a backflip and so forth. And, and I found that, that many believers feel like that's what we do with God. We, we hold the hoop. We see now, now, God, I want you to do this and this. And if you'll answer this prayer, if you'll save this person, if you'll heal this person, if you give me this, and if you'll jump through my hoop, then, then I'll trust you. And until we come to the place where we realize that, that it's not us holding the hoop, God holds the hoop and God tells us what to do. But we're sitting there like the ringmaster telling God what to do. And if God doesn't perform in the way we want him to act, no, he said, well, God let me down. No, no, you have no right to tell the God of the universe what hoop to jump through. And, and, and there's times in our life where we come, we say, I know I got to let go of that. I got to trust God. I let go on the hoop. But, you know, it, it's just it's eventually we just say, no, I, I'm grabbing that back. And some of us have let go of that hoop time after time in our life, but we just still say, no, give, give me back. Because I, I, need you to, I need to be in charge here. And you're not going to go any farther in your walk with God until you let go of the hoop and say, God, you are sovereign and I am not. What, what does that mean? It means that he's God and I'm not, and I'm okay with that. And until you come to that place where you can live in the sovereignty of God, you're not going to go any farther in your Christian life. Now here in Isaiah 40, this is a great chapter. It's one of my great favorite chapters in the Old Testament. The first part talks about John the Baptist and, and, and his life in a prophetic way. I love verse 8. The word of our God will stand forever. Look down at verse number 12 now. Here, here's Isaiah trying to tell these Israelites how they need to follow God and listen to God. And they're, they're, they're holding the hoop. And he asks them a question. It's a rhetorical question, verse 12. He says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Have you done that? Are you big enough to measure the water of the world? The How much water is there on the face of the earth? There are 340 quintillion gallons. 
Three zeros is a thousand. Three more is a million. Three more is a billion. Three more is a trillion. Three more is a quadrillion. Three more is a quintillion. 340 quintillion gallons, and God holds it all in the palm of his hand. What a God. What a vast God. What an almighty God. And the point is, the God who holds the oceans of the world in the palm of his hand is big enough to take care of your life. He goes on and says, and who has marked the heavens in the span? How big is our universe? It says he marks the heaven in the span of his hand. The span is a distance from your thumb to your little finger. We measure horses by the span. And he says, the God that you are disobeying, the God you're not following, holds the universe inside the span of his hand. How big is our universe? There's really no way we can comprehend our universe. And we, we try to take pictures of it from space, and, and we try to imagine how large it is. We, we look at the sun, and, and you know it's, it's 93 million miles away, and it's just like a little dot in the sky. We, we don't even measure in, in, in miles per hour, because that's just too ab- absurd. We measure it in light years. That's how far light travels in a year. Light travels 186,270 miles per second. You snap your fingers in that much time, light has traveled on the earth seven and a half times that fast. At the speed of light, it would take you about nine minutes to get to the sun. It's 93 million miles away. At the speed of light, the next closest star is four years away. And the edge of our galaxy is 100,000 light years away. How do we comprehend that? The edge of our universe is 10 billion light years. How do we even comprehend that? We can't. But here's the deal. The God who you serve measure all of that in the palm of his hand. And here you are telling God what to do. What's that all about? He goes on and says, who has directed, verse 13, the spirit of the Lord? Of course, nobody. Who was his counselor? Who who instructed? Who informed God? No one. With whom did he consult? Who gave him understanding? Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? Who informed him in the way of understanding? The point is no one informs God. So why do you keep giving God instructions? It is absurd to give the offer to offer the God of the universe your advice. Give him your worship. Don't give him advice. Stop telling God when to do this and when to do that. He's God. He does not have to explain to you or me or anybody else why or how he runs his universe. And until you embrace that, you're going to be at odds with God. Listen, I've realized this. If I understood everything God does, I would not question anything that he does. But I don't understand everything God knows. And because I don't know everything God knows, then I'm not going to be able to understand. We, We say... The problem is, God, you're not explaining to me why this is happening. The problem is not God's explanation. It's our finite ability to understand. There's no way he can communicate those things to us. We don't have the capacity right now. And until you are at rest with the fact that he is God and does not have explained to you why he does what he does, then you're going to sit there and butt heads with God all day. He goes on and says, behold, verse 15, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. I think sometimes, as Americans, we have this big head, like, boy, God really needs America. God does not need America. God could wipe this nation off the face of the earth tonight, and and it would not be missed. Because God's plan will continue unhindered without our country. You You know how valuable you are? Put your hand in a bucket of water, pull your hand out, and see the hole that you leave. 
God doesn't need, God is self-existent. He's self-perpetuating. He does not need us. I, I, I have people say, well, right here in the Bible, I've heard preachers say, right here, here's where America is. I don't think America is even in the Bible. I think we've got a great big head about who we are. And, and, and God should just wipe us off the map. He goes on and says, the nations are regarded as a speck of dust on the scale of God. The earth weighs six sextillion metric tons. And it's just a speck of dust on God's scale. He goes on in verse 22, puts us in perspective. It says, it is he who sits upon the circle of the earth. The inhabitants are like grasshoppers. That's us. We're the grasshoppers. That's giving us the benefit of the doubt. He goes on and down, verse 26, lift up your eyes on high, verse 26, and see who created these stars. The Lord leads their host by number. He calls them all by name. Are you kidding? How many stars are there? We, we, we live in this galaxy called the Milky Way galaxy. We used to think that was all there was. And we're told there's 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Then a guy named Hubble came along and invented a telescope, and all of a sudden the heavens opened up. And now what we thought at one point were stars or other galaxies, and now we're told there's 100 billion galaxies with their own 100 billion stars. How much is 100 billion times 100 billion? I think it's the national debt. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. but <laughs> try, to, try to comprehend this. If every person on the face of the earth what, is it 7.5 billion? If every person on the face of the earth had a million-volume library, okay, every, every person on, on every continent in you know, China and Russia and Texas, all those foreign countries, if every person had a million-volume library, Dan, you have a million-volume library? You got a million volumes? No, I, don't, I only have five in my library and two aren't colored in yet. But anyway, if, if every person had a million volumes, every book as thick as a Webster's Dictionary... Are you envisioning that? Every person on the face of the earth, a million volumes, as thick as Webster's dictionaries, there would still not be enough pages of paper to write the names of 100 billion times 100 billion stars. And God calls them all by name. I've got six kids. I can't keep their names straight. How, how does God do that? He's God. And he, he calls them by name. He knows everything. And, and, and we have this attitude that, God, unless you jump through my open, unless, unless you do what I say, then I'm not going to follow you. Listen, stop giving God advice. You know, you know what we are? We, we are practical atheists. We have a great big God of creation, but a midget God of everyday life. I was uh, asked to counsel a, a girl one time. Her parents wanted her to go to a particular Christian college. She didn't want to go there. They asked me to talk with her. I said, I said, look out the window. I said, do you see the sky, the clouds, the mountains? Do you think that one day God stepped out on the front porch of heaven and spoke the worlds into existence? Did God create the heavens, the earth? She said, oh, yes, yeah, I believe that. I said, do you think that God, who is big enough to create the heavens and the earth, is big enough, if that's what he wants for you, to reach inside your dad's heart and mind and tell your dad to go to the school that you want to go to, can you pray and ask God to do it? If that's what God wants, can God change your dad's mind? Is God big enough to do that? I asked her that question. She thought, and she thought, and she thought. She said, I don't know. I have a fellow in my chair. But that's the way we are. We think God can create the universe. We're not sure he can change our wife. 
Not sure he can change our husband. Not sure he can deal with that child. God can create the universe, but we're not convinced he can do something in a person's life. We're practical atheists. We, we say we believe in God, but we don't live that way. I, I, I was reading, um, you know, the, the New Age movement basically says, you know, we're all God. We're all God. We just forgot we were God. What kind of God forgets he's God? But anyway, that, that's, the, that's their premise. And, 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 and uh, Frank Peretti was saying that he was watching this, this uh, lady do this video, and she was talking about the fact that the New Age movement, she was talking to her little guru, and her little guru said, you are God. You just have to believe you're God. And she said, okay, I, I believe I'm God. He said, you really have to believe it. Okay, I believe. And he said, you really have to believe it. And he said, there's this picture of this lady standing on the beach in a majestic scene and some of 340 quintillion gallons are splicing over the rocks and, and the music swells and she looks up in the sky and she says, I am God. And Frank Pretty says, can't you imagine God looking over the front porch of heaven saying, Michael, what is that down there? I am God. <laughs> and the Bible says God sits in the heaven and laughs. It's got to be one of those times, doesn't it? Where this little puny mortal woman is claiming herself to be God. But as ridiculous as that is, that's how we live. We sit there and shake our fist into God's face and tell him what to do. Until you come to a place where you can embrace the sovereignty of God and say, God, you do not have to explain to me why you run your universe in the way you run it, why you bring snow on the night like this, why you let this happen, this person. And, and you don't have to explain that to me. You're God. I'm not. And I'm okay with that. And until you come with that, come to that point, you're not going to go any farther in your Christian walk. God does his work in sovereign ways. Here's, I, here's the second one. God does his work in sudden ways. In, in Hebrews 12, 6, it says, Everything that can be shaken will be shaken. Ever felt like God was taking you by the ankles, holding you upside down, and just shaking loose everything in your life? He'll do that. He'll shake loose everything in your life that's not like Jesus. We were uh, out in California some years ago. And uh, my, my wife is from Indiana. She grew up in Muncie. And, and, and we're in the, the South and, and a lot and in this area a lot. And, um, and they have uh, hurricanes, right? Tornadoes, excuse me, tornadoes. And, and I, I didn't grow up on the West Coast where we didn't have, you know, tornadoes. And so, and I, I know there's, there's like, my wife watches the weather all the time. And there's like, there's warnings and watches, right? Which is worse? See, that makes sense to me. It, it should be warning, it's coming. Watch out, there it is. You know, I just... I, I just can never get those which is which and when we're in trouble and whatever. But anyway, so, so, so we were out in California and um, I, was, I was preaching and I had some time off and we went to a little outlet trinket store or whatever and an earthquake hit. We have, that's what we have on the West Coast. Now, there's no warnings. There's no watches. When an earthquake, it, it just happens. And we were in this little trinket jewelry store and everything started shaking. I just grabbed Debbie and pulled her under a table there, you know. There, there's no warning. And sometimes God does his work in the suddenness of an earthquake. Just to shake loose our life. To see, are you going to cry out for grace? Or are you going to say, I can handle this and forget all about God? At some point tonight we're going to be through. And, and uh, let, let's say you got to your house tonight. And because of the snowstorm or whatever, there was a power outage. And you stood at the front door of your house and all the lights went out. It was pitch black. Could you find the flashlight in your house? Most people could. Let's say you keep in that, that kitchen in the island thing and the third door down. So, so you, you'd walk in your house, pitch black, can't see a thing. 
But you live there long enough to know how the layout of the home is. And so you, you might bump into a wall every now and then, but, but you know generally how it goes and, and where to walk. And you, you'd come to the kitchen and you'd, you'd, you'd be feeling your way a little bit. But you know there's that island thing out there. And so you'd find your way over. You'd reach down, you'd pull the drawer out, and you'd, you'd pull out the flashlight. What did you do? You applied in the dark what you'd learned in the light. And, and that's what these days are like. Th- th- these are days of light. Where God is saying, here are some principles. Here's how to apply grace. Here's, here's how to live. Now, now, when the lights go out, don't throw everything in. Don't throw in the towel. Apply in the dark what you learn in the light. Every time one of your pastors opens his book and says, thus saith the Lord, that's a time of light. So, so apply in the dark what you learn in the light. Spurgeon said it this way. He said, learn to trust the heart of God even when you can't see the hand of God. The children of Israel, all they knew was the hand of God. And if God wasn't jumping through their hoop, giving them the right food they wanted, the water they wanted, when they wanted, they were all ready to go back to Israel, go back to Egypt. They they were done with God because it wasn't jumping through their hoop. But Moses knew the ways of God. And so he trusted God's heart, even when he didn't see his hand jump through the hoop in the way that he wanted it to. And so many of us are, are, are living wrongly because of that. You know, I believe every time we get squeezed, what comes out, as we talked about last week, shows the real us. I was reading a verse sometimes in, in, in 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, and it says there must be division. There must be factions in the church so that those that are approved may be revealed. There's going to be times where, where, where sudden things are going to happen, and the response of that person really shows what's in their heart. And, 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 and the problem for us is we don't respond God's way because we don't have a right view of the way he's working. Here's the third thing. God does his work in silent ways, in silent ways. I think a lot of times we, we miss the supernatural because we're, we're, we're looking for the spectacular. In, in 1 Kings 19, God was going to pass by, and the strong wind came. He wasn't there, and the earthquake came. He wasn't that. And the fire came, and then God came in a still, small voice. And, and a lot of times, we're, we're looking for whatever is the biggest show. Sometimes God does his work in silent ways. Urban Lutzer was sharing with our staff some years ago. He said, blessed is the man who does not interpret the silence of God as the indifference of God. Sometimes God is silent. Sometimes the Puritans talked about the, the dark night of the soul when, when they would try to pray and they, they couldn't get through. And, and Luther said, God is, is never indifferent to his people. There are sometimes where one of his ways is the way of silence. So when God is silent, again, don't, don't throw in the towel. When, when, just spent, realize God has a plan. God is in charge. And, and, and don't miss the, the, the supernatural because you're trying to find the most spectacular thing. When Jesus was asked by disciples how to pray, he didn't give them a lecture. He just prayed. It, it, it was not a big show. And, and the enemy has not met a, a praying church. Most of our prayer is analyzing the situation and telling God what to do about it. Don't do that. Start your prayer in a time of silence. Let your focus be, be on God. It, it makes no sense to call him Lord and then give him our to-do list. God does his work in silent ways. And then here's another one. I don't like this one, but God does his work in suffering ways. The fact is that the ways of God are the ways of the cross. I'm going to share more about this on, 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 on Wednesday night, just kind of, uh, kind of the, the, the journey we're walking through. 
But, but God does his work in, 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 in suffering ways. The, the, the ways of God are the ways of the cross. The, the ways of the cross are ways of temptation. It's not sin to be tempted. It's yielding to that. The ways of the cross are ways of misunderstanding and loneliness. You know, I found we, we don't mind suffering as long as everybody knows we are. You know, uh, we, we, the, the Pharisees, when they would fast, they would contort their faces. They wouldn't shave and they'd kind of, you know, you know, walk around slowly. And people say, what's happening in your life? Oh, I'm fasting. Ooh, you know. And Jesus said, they have the reward. The reward is people are impressed. He said, when you fast, take a bath, shave, and, and don't tell anybody. What you do in secret, God will reward openly. And, and, and we, I'd like to pat some people on the back, but their hand's always in the way. And, 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 and sometimes, you know, we just, we just want to make sure everybody understands and knows uh, what, what we're going through. We want to advertise it. The, the ways of the cross are ways of obedience. The ways of the cross are ways of humiliation. Jesus made himself of no reputation, Philippians 2, 7 says. There's a little phrase I heard years ago. I, I, I can't say it's, it's true in my life. I'm convicted every time I say it, but it's a little prayer. It goes like this. Make me little and unknown, loved and prized by God alone. Is that really my heart? Make me little and unknown, loved and prized by God alone. Mm. Jesus made himself of no reputation. He says, no man takes my life. I, I lay it down. He was willing to be counted as a failure. I mean, here, a week earlier, they were proclaiming the king of kings is here. And a week later, they're crucifying. He was willing to die. The most humiliating death of the time. And the, the ways the cross are ways of death. Uh, it, it's a, a, you, don't, you don't walk away from a crucifixion. You're carried away. And it, it's dead to the praise of man, dead to ease and dead to control. The, the principle of the cross is this, a total willingness in my heart to fall to the ground and die. Except that kernel of corn goes in the ground and dies, it's never going to produce any fruit. But once it dies, buried, covered, out of sight, never to be seen again, then it rots away on the outside and the life inside is able to blossom. Are you willing for that? Now, those are just some of the ways of God, sovereign ways and silent ways and sudden ways and suffering ways. And, and you need to, as you read through Scripture, write down and notice how God operates this universe. So when things don't go your way and God doesn't jump through your hoop, you can still embrace his will for your life. Let me just give you some observations I'm learning about the will of God. The will of God is always purposeful, though it may seem inconvenient. In Acts 16, we read the story of Paul and Silas, and, and, and here they are, they're out preaching, they're illegally arrested, Ill, illegally beaten, I mean, it was against the law, he was a Roman citizen, without a trial, put in jail, that was unheard of. He's thrown in the jail, he's in the lowest part of the jail, the stench of human dung all around, rats nibbling at his feet, it's midnight, and, and bugs clung through their wounds, and, and was he in the will of God, yes or no? Yes or no? Was it convenient? Absolutely not. But there was an incredible purpose in that. He knew at that point in Philippians 1, he said, my circumstances, he was one of the prison epistles, he's in prison. He said, my circumstances have fallen out for the furtherance of the gospel. He said, the whole praetorium guard, 5,000 men made up the praetorium guard, and they, they rotated around being chained to Paul. 
Talk about a captive audience. And, and, and there, uh, he was able to share Christ with them. And many of them responded. He said, my circumstances fall out for the furtherance of the gospel. He was grateful for his imprisonment because he knew that that was the exact place he needed to be to accomplish what God wanted for him. He said in 2 Corinthians 12, I, I would most gladly accept this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. He had some kind of a physical issue. Because in accepting this, the power of God can rest upon me. That, that, that's why he was concerned about God never calls you in convenience without a purpose. That the will of God is also beneficial, though it may seem uncomfortable. You think you've had bad, you've had bad days? Here's Job. In one day, all of his children die. He loses all of his wealth. A few days later, he loses his health. He's sitting there in a, a, an ash heap, scratching his boils with broken pottery, Lost everything but his wife and, and big help she was. She said, curse God and die. That was her advice, right? And he's lost all these things. And here he is in his most desperate situation. But because he understood the ways of God, he was able to say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Naked came I in the world, naked go I out. In all this, the Bible says, Job sinned not with his lips. Why? Because he understood the ways of God. Now, now, we read the story of Job, and, and, and we see this argument going on in the heavenlies. We, we see God talking to Satan, and Satan saying, and, and, and we watch the drama up there. Job didn't see that. You say, well, God restored it back to him, not overnight. You don't have a whole family overnight. It's like nine months at a time, right? And it, it, it was hundreds of years, literally, before God restored everything that Job had lost. And, and all this time... Job is not hearing the story. He didn't read his book at that time, right? It had not been written. And, and so here he goes through hundreds of years of his life. We look now and we see the whole story. We can read it in 42 chapters. But he went through hundreds of years without explanation. And in all this, Job sinned not with his lips. Not because he understood why all that happened. Because he understood God. And he said, God, you're God and I'm not. And I'm okay with that. And, and just think how beneficial Job's story has been to millions of people. Including all of us. All heaven and hell was watching Job's lips. Is he going to curse God and die? Or is he going to say, no. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Paul said, this momentary light affliction is working a far more eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. All things work together for good than the love of God. Sometimes the, the will of God is not followed because we don't like its restrictions. But the will of God is always liberating, though it may seem restrictive. In Job 24, 13, it says, some rebel against the light. They don't want to know its ways. Some of us don't really want to know what God wants because we don't want the restrictions of that. How restrictive was it for Christ? Here he was, the God who spoke the worlds of existence, omnipotent, omnipresent, and now he confines himself for nine months to Mary's womb. He confines himself to the body of a helpless baby in a manger. He goes through all the indecencies of a toddler. Just, just, and here he is, the God of the universe, confined to human speech, a human body. But in that confinement, in his willingness to do that, now we are able to enjoy incredible liberty, liberty incredible freedom. 
When is a, Jay Adams says, when, when is a, a, a train the most free? When it's on the tracks or off the tracks? What's the answer? On the tracks. If, if that train takes life and decides, I'm tired of going on the same track, I think I'm going to go through this cornfield, jumps off the tracks, it'll get one car length and fall over. You see, every freedom has a corresponding bondage. And every bondage has a corresponding freedom. For example, you can be free from your toothbrush and a slave to cavities. Or you can be a slave to your toothbrush and free from cavities. Every freedom has a corresponding bondage. Every bondage, a corresponding freedom. And you can either be free from sin and a slave to Christ, or you can be free from Christ and a slave to sin. There's going to be restrictions. I, I, I've seen team members. I've, had, I've been with 44 different teams over the years. That's a lot of team members. And, and, and I've seen team members come to our ministry and hear the truths like you're hearing for, for an entire year. And, and because of some, we, we have restrictions. We restrict their dating. We restrict their, the way they dress. We restrict some of their viewing habits. They're, they're, we've just found some things that are best practices for us to be able to survive in this close-quartered culture that we live in. I'm not saying it's all biblical right and wrong. It's things we've just found best for our culture. And, and, and I've seen team members come in and, and push against those restrictions. Well, explain to me why. Tell me why I can't do that and miss all that God wanted to do in their life because they resisted some restriction that just pushed against their flesh a little bit. And we do the same thing. We say, God, I want to be totally free. Don't tell me how to live. Don't tell me what to do, what not to do. And when you resist the restrictive will of God, You're going to miss the freedom that comes in in obeying him. And the will of God is always, just like that train on the track, it is the most free when it stays on the track. And some of us have resisted God's will because we don't like some of the things he's telling us not to do. The will of God is always rewarding, though it may be momentarily costly. Turn to Hebrews 11 for a minute. I love Hebrews 11. It's my favorite New Testament chapter. It's like, it's like Sunday school on steroids, right? It's got all the, the stories of all these great late heroes of the faith. And, and it lists them by their, by their accomplishments, by um, all the things and tells their story. And then and look down in Hebrews 11, about verse 33. And then in verse 33, he comes back and he, and he, and he begins to explain. Uh, he said, what, what time will fail to tell us of, of, of David and Jephthah and, and Gideon and Joshua? He starts listing all these, these individuals. And, and, then, and then Hebrews 11, he, he lists them by their, their actions. And I, I want to be in, in, in the first part of this. I, I want to be, look, look down at verse number 33. Who by faith conquered kingdom, performs acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. I have a high adventure quotient. I, I, I love adventure. I want to be in the, 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 the group that shuts lions' mouths. Quench the power of fire. Escape the edge of the sword. I love sword fighting movies. I want to be in the sword fighting group. From weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And I wanted to stop right there. But it doesn't. It says others were tortured, not accepting their release. Others were 36, experienced mockings and scourgings, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Were they in the will of God, yes or no? 
Absolutely. But it was incredibly costly. Tozer said this, God never uses a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Now, I don't like that. It's not a scriptural passage, but I think it's true. But here's the, here's the incredible thing. In almost every scripture, God holds out the promise of reward. Because I think we need to see the, we need to see the value of the things we're pursuing. He wants us to know that even our suffering has great purpose. In, in, in Matthew 19, Peter uh, you know, says to Jesus, Jesus, uh, what are we going to receive? We've left everything to follow you. What will we receive? And you think Jesus would say, Peter, you just follow me because I said so. But he, but he says, no, he didn't rebuke him. He says, everyone who follows me will receive many times more. And on top of that, eternal life. He always holds out the promise of reward. And I, I believe that God's desire is to, is to take us through circumstances and situations, but he always has an end goal. Paul lost everything when he embraced Christ. Joseph lost everything. Jim Elliot lost his life. But in all those things, uh, he said, these things I, I count, Paul said, as lost that I might gain Christ. Amy Carmichael said, can he have followed far who has no wound nor scar? There's going to be a cost, but there is always a reward at the end. And then, and then the will of God is always sufficient, though it may not be visible. My, my, I mentioned my goal in life was to be a basketball coach. I came to Life Action out of college, and I learned a verse, Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. There's nothing wrong with coaching basketball. But that, that's what I wanted. That's not what God had for me. And, and, and here I am. I, I've never been called to preach. I never had a desire to go to the mission field, go in the ministry, and so well, then you're not prepared. God has provided everything that I've needed for all these years to do what he's asked me to do. And God will provide everything you need to do what God asks you to do if you'll seek him first. He'll, he'll provide. He is sufficient for every need you'll ever have. There's one more thing I want to say about the will of God. I wish I didn't have to add this last one. The will of God is always the best path. But it's normally ignored. It's, it should say, but it is normally ignored. Cross out the word not. That's wrong. It is always the best path, path but it is normally ignored. It's always the best path. But, 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 but we ignore, even though it's the best thing. I was in a meeting some years ago, and a good friend of mine, and he said, um, this afternoon I was at my insurance agent's office, and um, doing some things. And I said, i got to leave. I have a meeting at our church tonight. And he said, who's there? And I said, Life Action. He said, I know about Life Action. He said, Life Action was at my church about 13 years ago. He said, six months before Life Action came, I'd been living in an adulterous affair. And I, and I ended it. And I decided to do right. And six months later, Life Action came. And it was a great time. And in that second week, we're in a service, and God just prompted my heart. I needed to take my wife out to the prayer room and, and, and tell her that I had had an affair, and, but I ended it. And, and, and God seemed to be prompting me to do that. And, and it's like God said, I, I have prepared your wife. She's heard these truths. She's heard about forgiveness. She will forgive you. You need to be honest with her. You don't want her finding out from somebody else. You need to tell her and be honest. Ask her to forgive you, and, and she'll forgive you. And so I took my wife by the hand, and we went out to the prayer room and sat down. And, and my wife said, you know, what is it? And, and I chickened out. I just said, well, I just 
I just want to pray with you. And so I prayed with her. I never said anything. Team came and left. And about three months later, my wife found out about that affair, but not from me and for someone else. And she was irate and she was upset and it just caused great friction. And within the year we were divorced. She left me. He said, I've often looked back to the time 13 years ago. I believe if I would have done what God said when he told me to do it, I think I'd still be married. But I, di but I didn't. And I, I can't tell you, not in that dramatic of a fashion, but I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, you know, God, God told me to do this. And I just, I, I just, I said, God, I want you to jump through my hoop. I'm not going to jump through yours. The will of God is always, always, always best. Now, take out that piece of paper that I gave you at the beginning of the service. I want us to close tonight by, by asking you to write a letter. I want you to write a letter to God. And I want you to start your letter this way. Dear God, I believe you are sovereign. And tonight, I choose to trust you with. There's something about forming into words those thoughts in our heart. And tonight, I want to challenge you to say, God, I, I agree. You are God and I am not. You're sovereign. And because I believe you are sovereign, I choose to trust you 